Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we're going to look at five things we need to understand about the deteriorating patient. And we are joined by Danny Hindle, who is the Medical Emergency Response Nurse Educator here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Danny. Thank you to you both for having me. It's always a pleasure to uh, have these conversations with minds like yourself. Awesome. So thanks, Danny. And here it's time for your origin story, mate. Tell us about your background in nursing and how you've got into this role. Uh, yeah, well, I um, graduated in 2009 into neurosurgery here at the Royal, where I spent my original grad year before um, flying off south to the PA hospital. I spent about a decade in and around the ICU at the PA, five to six years in the ICU itself, then out into the ICU outreach service. Um, and so it took me about five years to get into CN roles before I started seconding out to the ICU outreach uh, then a clinical facilitator role came up inside of the outreach, which I was successful for. So set that role up over a year. Um, before jumping out and doing a bit of project work, actually, I went and worked for corporate services at the PA there. Uh, I was involved in projects like the ASNZ4187, the reusable medical devices um, overhaul that's been happening in acute facilities and then the cladding projects. So a few few construction projects before coming back to ICU. Um, I lived on the north side at the time, so I was kind of looking for a job at the Royal. Um, and then a clinical nurse, clinical facilitator role came up um, between ICU and emergency. So jumped over here into WeDo, um, which was a fantastic role that gave me great exposure. Exposure to ED for the first time because I grew up in ICU. Um, I was only in it for about three months though before I went into the crit care educator um, here in the crit care service line. Um, and then I spent a year as the ED educator, um, which was a great exposure for me coming from ICU into ETC. I got to see how hard those guys work and seeing everyone who comes through the doors. That, that's about the time that COVID started. Um, and I spent a few months in that space before I went and managed seven of the Metro North hotel quarantine venues as a nurse manager for a little while. Um, after that, I've jumped back here into the Mert nurse educator role. So I'm a guy who likes to bounce around, who loves new opportunities. Uh, and I've just kicked off my nurse practitioner studies, you know, half, in ice, uh, half in emergency and half in internal medicine. So that's a little bit about my journey. It's actually more fractured CV than mine is. So I'm going to make my wife listen to this episode. <laughs> go see, you can keep moving forward in the, same, in the right direction. I'd encourage it. Uh, and, you know, I think it's worth kind of almost sitting with for a moment to, you know, we've got a lot, we're hoping lots of new graduates listen to this podcast about where you are now. If it's not your fit, it's okay to move. It's okay to trial different things and give yourself a chance in a different area with a different team, with different mentors about, you know, like what floats your boat. Yeah, absolutely. I was always told um, find something you like to do and do it more, but if you can't then just um – look elsewhere, try and find a job that 
kind of keeps you engaged and you're probably going to do the best that you can in a job that you like. So yeah. why not? Yeah, so interesting. So let's get started. Your number one when when it comes to learning about the deteriorating patient is get yourself educated. Yeah, absolutely. So I picked this one for the fact that when I came out of my three years in uni, I kind of felt as though I'd accumulated a little bit of knowledge. And then I remember sitting in my first handover and thinking, what the hell are these guys talking about? I'm hearing SAH, SDH, you know, AVM, and I'm thinking, I really need to get more knowledge, more learning. And so there's a plethora of courses that are here at the Royal that'll help new graduates grow in their skills and knowledge from patient assessment courses to their local nurse educator and transition pathways um, to our basic life support courses, our REACT or MERT courses that we run. So there's a lot of education out there for them if they will seek it. Um, watching experiencing uh, experienced clinicians is another really good thing to do. I remember my first arrest in neurosurge, a gentleman who had a large aneurysm who'd just gone to the toilet, was on his way back, all we heard was a big gasp. Um, I remember watching a senior nurse and thinking, how does she know what to do mm. in this kind of a situation? So just watch the experienced clinicians around you. You don't know what you don't know. And some of this stuff is better caught than taught. You know, I'm not someone who can really just read an A4 page and retain all of it. But when I see it being done, I grow in my own skills and knowledge as well. Um, understand how your equipment works and where it is. Knowledge is power with these kind of things. So um, understand things like, okay, I need the right blood pressure cuff um, for this size patient to get an accurate reading. Um, understand that when you put your finger plate on, it's amazing how often we get people to the patient assessment course and they, I talk to them about the finger, uh, the SPO2 pleth and what the waveform looks like and what it represents. The fact that people don't understand it represents a pulse, which is a cardiac output, and it tells you about regularity. So understanding your equipment is important, but knowing where to go, to being a part of those trolley checks and knowing where stuff is around the hospital is really vital information as well. So, yeah, there's a ton out there to get educated. You just have to seek it. And obviously listen to five things. Nursing podcast. Oh, sorry. As well. Yeah, that was my last one. It was your number one, wasn't it, Danny? Absolutely. <laughs> it's a really interesting point, and I think it's uh, what what you said so fascinating. In someone that's done a lot of work in a lot of different environments, is how to attach your knowledge to the aspects of the environment. There's a there's a term for that which I only learned probably 18 months ago. Of called distributed cognition, where we place knowledge and cognition in objects or artifacts of the system. And that can actually offload a heap of mental workload by spending that time when you're new to a space of orientating to all the equipment, getting to know that stuff, but then also placing attached sort of thoughts, knowledge, concepts to that equipment as well um, is a great way other than just having a disease framework for thinking about your knowledge base, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. I mean, I mean there's a plethora of online stuff and, you know, it's not only about knowing everything but knowing where to go to get the information that you need as well. And so uh, with that, would both of you suggest then I come on to a shift? I've never worked the higher end of the bed numbers. You know, I've never been from beds 30 to beds 40. Do, as part of my handover, do I then walk around and go, okay, where's this trolley? Where's this button? Where's this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I haven't been working in ICU a lot lately, but I've been able to moonlight back there over the last couple of weeks. And the first thing I did was go around the bed space in a clockwise direction, identifying where is my emergency buzzer, where's my suction, where's my oxygen um, flow meters, what are my alarms, where's the equipment in the 
in the drawers beside me. So anytime I get into a new environment, I think, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? That's the information I absolutely need to know. Um, and then as I get time, learning more about the department through looking around. Yeah, great. Yeah. So your number two is, okay, you have a concern. What, what do you do next? So you've got a patient, you think they're deteriorating. You have a concern. What do you do next? Yeah, so I think this is something that didn't click for me for quite some time, especially as a nurse. You know, you come out of college and you're taught you're there to support the doctor. Your job is to get the observations and then to escalate them and report them to someone higher up who has decision-making skills. But in nursing, it's not only about identifying what is not normal. It's asking yourself, what am I going to do about that inside of my scope um, with the skills that I have to intervene? It's not only about assessment, it's about intervention. Um, so, for example, um, my patient has a slightly low SpO2 reading when I put on their pleth. There's a multitude of things that I can do. Sit them up 30 to 45 degrees. Is their oxygen low enough to put oxygen on? Make sure that my equipment's working correctly and that my pleth trace is correct. It's amazing the amount of times we come along to Mertz and the pleth is showing 84, but the signal is not there and it's not on. It's actually fallen off. So, Growing up in ICU, another thing they taught us is eight out of ten alarms is probably equipment an equipment fault. So check your equipment, work your way back. Yeah. Okay. I think that point of um, having again, it's this, these deliberate processes. And if you can't, if you're not familiar with the equipment, make yourself a set and standardised process. Mine is always if there's an odd number on a monitoring piece of equipment start at the patient and work your way back up the line from where the connection point to the patient would be back to the machine. Because the failure points, like if you can exclude the patient as the failure point, the failure point's usually at a, like an interface between the monitoring and the, the patient. It's very rarely the monitor itself and it's often quite rarely the patient. So as part of that, would you also say that when you come on a shift, you should look and go, Who's got your back? You know, who is it in this team that I always trust clinically to to go to? Like, where are they situated? If I think, am I am I hitting the buzzer here? You know, if I've got uncertainty, who is my go to person? Like, is, is that sort of thinking helpful as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I probably should have talked about that a little bit earlier. But it's knowing who to escalate to when you yeah. get outside of your scope. I often think when I've got too many jobs for me to do with my two hands, I'm outside of my scope, I need to escalate it or I need to get support from the team. Um, but I think senior nurses know that there's a bunch that junior nurses don't know coming out of college um, or out of uni. And so we feel very safe when we see someone that's escalating regularly um, to their team leader. QADS has taken a lot of the work away from us here we know that even at a QADS of one we need to escalate to our team leader which is a really healthy practice just to double check with uh, our brains trust about what could be going wrong you know why this change has occurred things like that because this podcast goes wider than the royal can you explain what's QADS yeah the QADS is a uh, a more sensitive and specific deterioration tool which basically adds up different vital signs to give you a score it is more sensitive and specific like I said and you'd think because it's that way that it would have led to more MERTs throughout the hospital. What it's actually done is decrease the amount of MERTs we have by about 30% because we're picking up deterioration earlier and we're escalating, treating teams and team leaders. They get there, they intervene. So we're not getting as many medical emergencies along the way. Yeah, great. All right, so number three, use and trust tools and the frameworks that already exist. 
Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about um, having a system and I don't really mind what system you have. You, it's just important to have one so that when the cognitive load increases or things get stressful, uh, you have a train track to stay on um, or stepping stones that will help you mentally deal with the load that you're encountering. Things like um, head to toe. Growing up in ICU, it was head to toe for me, uh, which was kind of neuro, respiratory, CVS, GIT, renal, integumentary, social. Um, since coming out into the deteriorating patient space, I think I wouldn't use anything else other than the A, B, C, D, E framework. So A for airway, B for breathing. And inside of that, there's little acronyms that are really easy to remember, again, that just help you stay on track when your patient's deteriorating. Um, so other things around that, um, patient deterioration, it's a science. There's a lot of evidence which supports early recognition intervention. That's the QADs that we talked about. Uh, these things exist for a reason. They've been created by experienced clinicians. Um, so use the tools that you have on top of the frameworks that you have. We've got a plethora of observation tools across the hospital. They exist for a reason. Um, and we should be asking ourselves, if our patient's condition changes, do we have another tool that we can help to um, help us manage this patient? Um, numbers are important. Vital signs are always good for getting, a, uh, I guess, a base level and helping us to see what our trajectory is like. We'll take another OBS in five minutes. We'll see whether blood pressure's gone up or down, heart rate's gone up or down. So you need to get that initial observations. But use your look, listen, feel method as well. Um, That'll render a lot of information to you. That end bettergram, that primary assessment as you look at your patient, um, that'll help you a lot with patient deterioration and is a framework in itself. Um, and practice using these frameworks in non-acute situations or non-stressful situations because how you train is usually how you play. Um, and if you have a large cognitive load and you don't have these frameworks, you end up getting lost not only in your clinical interventions, but in the way you communicate with others and handover, if you don't have a, a handover process or framework, it's usually really hard to pass on the information you have in a coherent and orderly manner. So that's another. You guys talk a lot about cognitive load and I often when I'm re-listening to some of these podcasts, I think, you know, sometimes what does that even, what does that mean? Like if I'm a junior person, aren't I cognitively overloaded every day because I'm just like, oh my God, I'm trying to be an adult. I'm trying to remember who's in the team. I'm trying to, so in those early phases, how quickly should we be trying to, you know, adopt these acronyms and these frameworks as a kind of security about what steps we're heading through next? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think the thing I'd take care of first is know who to escalate to, which you talk to. Again, um, hopefully you've realised by now as you've come out of uni studies, there's a bunch of stuff that you don't know. Um, you thought you knew this much and now you realised how much you don't know and it's far greater than the things that you know. Yeah. You just need to know who to escalate to. That's your safety net at the beginning. Um, from then on, as you get time and opportunity exposure to clinical situations, you learn these – and you, you complement them with these frameworks, then you'll grow in your practice. I yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's more about building the habits and being really deliberate about the habits that you build for yourself rather than having to learn another mnemonic because they can actually make you more overloaded sometimes. So right. having, having an approach and adopting approaches. One of the things that's really useful, I think, is starting to think about – um, de deteriorations fall into actually a fairly small degree of syndromes and starting to think about it's something that emergency department or emergency medicine practice does really well thinking about presenting complaints mm. like we've got the diagnosis for an admitted hospital patient but they're deteriorating what's the complete presenting complaint is this an altered level of consciousness so you start with these kind of models that over time you grow and grow and grow 
with having them as either an initial red flag and then thinking, okay, I've got an altered level of consciousness model, which means at the start that might just mean I always check a blood sugar. Like then that'll obviously evolve massively over time, reflection, seeing stuff that doesn't fit patterns. There's a tachycardia as your chief presenting complaint. Then it's then you divide that into is this stable versus unstable? Like is there blood pressure in their boots? Do they look terrible or are they sitting there talking to me? So you start with just that. They're tachycardic. That's what I see. That might be a point when you start, you've recognised that as the presenting complaint and you're already at your knowledge stretch. And I go, Danny, can you help me? The patient, This look. patient's got a heart rate of 130, just under met criteria. Um, and But I... But they look okay to me. Am I missing something? Mm. Um, so those sort of things, I think, are more in, uh, in, arguably more important as a novice of building those fundamental blocks of going, what's what's the problem? What's mm. not normal? And then hopefully evolving that over the yeah. years and and forming assessment tools to help you get further down your tree. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, it's about knowing what's normal so that you can tell what's abnormal as well. Yeah. Uh, that's the first point and in, in, in knowing who to escalate to and then just growing in your knowledge over time. I love that idea of habit. I'm, I'm really all about habits for well-being and all sorts of things. But even for me as a clinician, I had all, never saw a family without putting a sticker at the top of the thing, writing a little genogram to myself, notes so that I could meticulously always do an assessment and at any point, including three years later, if I had to go to court, it was there, it was laid out. And when you have those habits and then things start, you know, the patient starts to deteriorate, you've got such a solid foundation to start from, haven't you, um, to then, you know, know I'm escalating or this is way above baseline something needs um, to happen I don't I don't consider myself the brightest guy too so a lot of this is about rote learning for me you do anything too much and you become a kind of a specialist in that field as well so practice these kind of things over and over again so that you do get good healthy habits in this kind of a situation um, and again so that your cognitive load or your stress doesn't doesn't grow there was one point I wanted to pick up on which you were saying there's there's so many different observation tools that can be added and added and added say I had to call them emert and they get there what what's going to be relevant that they can't just assess at that point in time and the hardest thing that uh, that the thing that keeps coming up all the time for me with the deteriorating patients on the wards when we go and see them from an ICU perspective is fluid balance that is an incredibly difficult thing to assess at a single point in time without any data of inputs or outputs isn't it oh he's taking us straight to our fourth point here isn't he after you call a code be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. So getting the environment prepared is so important. Is my patient in a position where they can be accessed from a 360-degree viewpoint if it's really acute uh, and if it's necessary? So clear your environment and start asking yourself. I mean, it's going to take three to seven minutes probably for the Mert team to get there. Start asking yourself, okay, why am I calling this code? What possible investigations do I need to do so that I could have the right information ready for them? And that involves things like the environment we talked about, getting your workstation on wheels or your computer for those in other hospitals um, so that we can bring up the, the pathology and the imaging. Get the patient chart if you're not in a digital site. Go to the nurse station, get the patient's larger chart and their bedside chart ready to go. Um, get your handover ready. Um, start those basic interventions. Like I said, if you come along and the SpO2 is low, okay, I've put auction on, I've sat them up, I've optimised my patient's position, I'm 
I've followed my instrumentation back to the wall, back to the Welsh Allen, which is our OBS device here, and I know that I'm getting an accurate trace. I know from that plant that it's my pulse is regular, I've got a cardiac output. So prepare the environment and preempt the kind of questions that are going to be asked. You know, uh, a few years ago, we our major call criteria for medical emergencies was low blood pressure or shock. Start thinking about, okay, um, I'm calling for low blood pressure. What could this be? What type of shock can it be? Could it be cardiogenic and I need to get an ECG and bring up their electrolytes, things like that, if you've learned how to, to read those. Um, take a blood pressure, get a heart rate, which I've probably already got. Is it distributive shock? Might I have sepsis here or something else going on? Is it obstructive shock? Does my patient have a blood clot? Are they at an at-risk population? Is it hypovolemic shock? What's my fluid status? What's my skin turgor? What's my mucosal membrane? What's been going in? What's been coming out? What's my fluid balance chart? Um, so having these frameworks actually helps you assess things like that. Okay, I don't have a fluid balance chart for someone who's dehydrated, but I can assess their skin turgor, their mucosal membrane, ask them questions about what's been going in and out. And I love having answers for medical officers when they come and I, and, and I kind of chastised myself when there was something simple like, okay, we're febrile. Have we given Panadol? Oh, no, I haven't given that yet. There's an intervention I haven't performed. So, yeah, after calling code, get prepared. Get your environment prepared. Get your equipment prepared. And start doing the investigations that you think are going to be applicable to this particular. Should you also, like, have, have at least a two-minute story? You know, this is a 36-year-old man who has admitted post to MBA. This is day four. You know, like, sh should... Should that also be something that you are ready to go? Is that your responsibility as the bedside nurse? Yeah, yeah. And I think I mentioned getting your hand over in your own mind. This is, again, where frameworks can come into play. You might use your S-bar um, to hand over, which is part of another podcast um, that you've probably gone through on communication. Um, but I use that. Uh, the first question they're going to ask is, why did you call a medical emergency? Mm -hmm. So that we can hone in on the body system that needs further investigation and then start telling me about their admitting problem, uh, our presentation, their medical history, what medications are there and what social, what's been going on in their healthcare journey that has led us to here. But yeah. having things like, okay, I've called the code for low blood pressure. Um, this patient originally came in with such and such. Uh, since they've been here, we've done this, this and this for them. Um, and then I've got a cumulative QAD score of more than eight now because these parameters are out and then let them take off from there. Okay, so your final point is, number five, take the time to debrief. Yeah, so medical emergencies can be a really stressful situation. They're probably some of the most stressful situations you're going to go into outside of kind of social stresses that occur in the healthcare um, industry. And debriefing is such an important part of that. Um, part of our role in the medical emergency response nurse educators to run simulation days. And we know about this pre-brief, which isn't always possible, but can be at handover. If you're taking over a patient that's sick, just pre-briefing about what may go wrong, what your actions are going to be if it does go wrong, that takes a huge stress off the nurses as they're looking after these patients. They know where they need to go, what train track they need to stay on. Then there's the post-event debrief as well, which can be hot or can be cold. Hot meaning straight after the event, um, cold a few weeks down the track. Um, but a lot of the learning happens at the hot or cold debrief. It's a chance to reflect. In SimWorld, um, most of the learning is done in the debrief. It's not so much in the situation where people are a little bit stressed and they do what they do. It's reflecting on that and saying, what would I have done better? What were some challenges? 
and going from there. So it's a great learning opportunity. It's a, just a chance to talk with colleagues, people who work alongside you every day and get that emotional support um, as well. There are other, I guess, resources that we can call on there, but um, who better to have the initial debrief with than people who know you, who work alongside you, who fit in and work in the same context. And who and who were there and... You know, it's also really important to have a bit of a framework for a debrief and I always think the stop model's really easy. Like S, summarise, like what was the story here? T, things that I actually think went well, you know, like and if you're personally reflecting like what what did I do really well that I'd want to replicate again in the future that I need to remind myself of? O is opportunities for things that you might change. If you had this exact same scenario again tomorrow, what are the things that you actually you know, I really wish I'd grabbed the chart or I wish that I'd asked for help sooner or I wish I'd orientated myself or asked the family to just step aside so that, you know, there was space. You know, like any any kind of learning and P is the things that you'd put in action. So, you know, is there something in the environment that you need to have changed that you want to escalate or even things for yourself like I really need to go back and, you know, do another resuscitation course or be involved in more simulations. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that's something we're trying to encourage specifically here at the Royal. It's a culture that both is used to giving and receiving both positive and constructive feedback. And it doesn't have to be a MERT. It could just be a busy shift or an acute patient that you've got calling a senior nurse to come over and say, have a look at the way I'm nursing my patient. Um, Can you make sure that I've covered everything I need to from a nursing perspective here? So just invite that constructive criticism that will help you grow, you know. I think you're probably going to be most sharpened against those people who who have, you know, the years of experience um, that can just feed into your own practice. So debriefing is really important. That is awesome. Yeah, I think it signposts really well to a um, future episode that we're going to do to deep dive on debriefing a little bit more. And when you are reflecting, we, we've talked about this in the podcast before, I always talk about the Fs. Is it a fact or is it a fear? You know, is it a fact that actually I, I should have perhaps hit the buzzer sooner or do I just have a fear about that? And so reflecting back can really help put that in some sort of perspective or maybe if you were a bit slow to hit the buzzer about, okay, this is a learning, what would I do differently next time? Yeah. Perfect. So I'm going to have a, a go at reflecting back all of that. Uh, please jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. So five things we need to remember about the deteriorating patient. Number one, get yourself as educated as possible. That's formal, informal, observation, reflection, uh, learning everything that you can um, about about how to nurse really, isn't it? And how to set yourself up to be as strong as you can so if the patient deteriorates, you're ready to go. Number two, you have a concern, what next? So be very clear, what is your concern? What could you actually do about it in the first instance? If it's outside your skill set, where do you go next? How do you get help? Number three, use the trusted tools and frameworks that already exist. Know what they are. Lighten your cognitive um, load by working through your A, B, C, D, E's uh, to make sure like, okay, you know, is this a deteriorating patient? If it is, is there something that I can do about that? Could this be positioning? Could this be equipment? Could this be – and if not, you know, I know at what point I'm now supposed to escalate and who to. Uh, Number four – 
after calling a code, be really prepared. The first thing they're going to ask you is, why did you call this code? Why do you need help? And then get some sort of system in your mind about how you're going to hand over this and what you can do to prepare the environment, the patient, uh, as best you can so that when that team walks through the door, everybody's ready to go, including you with some clarity of thought. And number five, this stuff's stressful, stressful for all of us. Uh, It's meant to be stressful. Um, And sometimes, you know, it can be distressing, but not always. Uh, Take the time to really debrief with the team that attended with experienced clinicians who can help fill in some of the gaps in knowledge or around your skill set. And if you're concerned that you did something wrong or could have done something better, check in. Is that actually true? And then work out what you would do differently next time. Yeah, good. Everybody have with that? I reckon you're in danger of getting picked up for a nursing shift that they can't fill. I'd be up for that, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> Pleasure to have you. <laughs> All right. Thank you once again, Danny. Great podcast. Thanks, guys. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things 